Hey fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Nerd Podcast. Today I'm inviting Eliza Westcote, who has a really engaging Instagram platform around tennis, probably other social media platforms that I'm not aware of, but it's Eliza's world on Instagram where she share, shares news, player profiles, everything that's happening in the tennis world. I really like her stuff, so check it out. How are you today, Eliza? I'm doing really well, thank you. And thanks so much for having me and for the lovely introduction. So you are relatively new to tennis in terms of playing, right? So that's the that's the story. Yes, I mean, so I played a little bit growing up. It was kind of a once a week, you know, tennis class amongst other sports that I was playing. And I always really enjoyed it, but I was more of a team sports player growing up. I played lacrosse and an English sport called netball. So that's really what took up most of my time. Um, and I'd play a little bit here and there in the summers, but it didn't. Uh, it took me until COVID to really get into playing tennis consistently on a regular basis and kind of really start taking some lessons and play with more seriousness. And uh, I think it was, you know, also a sport I chose because it's really a lifelong sport and I wanted to find something that uh, could take me through the many different phases of my life. I think that's a great uh, way to put it. And I think also I, I started got back to tennis quite late like uh, in my 20s as well so mm -hmm. I think the love is stronger when you find something late than maybe if you get in there straight away is that your feeling as well like the passion is is a bit more strong than maybe some players who play tennis the whole life you know yes I agree I mean I think with anything when it's like your own choice to to work hard at something and get into it then your passion and your love is kind of all on your own terms I think there are a number of players who you know play growing up because their parents want them or it helps them get a scholarship to get into school or there's many other reasons why they might play out of kind of love and passion for the sport itself and so you know my parents never really pushed me with sports i played at a high level in the other sports but um often when i speak to folks who played in college for example they have a period of time after the fact where they just don't want to play for a few years because they've lost some of that love and passion for it and all the work that went into it can kind of take some of that away so in a way, I'm really grateful that I came to it a little bit later in life and it's all been on my own terms. And um, I think that's the special part about, you know, coming to it a little bit later. Yeah, it's it's a very good point, like that you have it on your own terms. I think some tennis parents can be quite toxic. I see a lot of relationships mm -hmm. with it. There some toxicity and it's like kind of the kid feels it's like a bit pushed towards tennis. Yeah. While when you're an adult, you, you choose your own passion and your own vices, right? So that, that makes sense. Uh, exactly. Have you noticed, like, do you get any kind of more insight from online coaches or going to a coach? Have you found like a, a like it's easy to get into tennis or is tennis kind of like a bit of a guarded sport? How do you perceive it? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely financially can be challenging to get into when, especially when you're starting from the beginning. And I do believe in, you know, kind of having a solid foundation and a base. And it's something that's kind of hard to self-teach or just learn from YouTube videos. I think that one-to-one -one instruction is super important and I often tell this story but I, I got really lucky a friend of mine's dad uh, coaches tennis and during COVID I was living in a small town in Connecticut he didn't have all that much to do I didn't have all that much to do and I you know shot him an email I said we, would you coach me I've been an athlete I you know I, I just want to work on a couple of things and he was like sure but you know you're gonna have to work hard and little did I know he'd be bringing out the cones and we'd be out there two, three hours. So it kind of turned into a passion project for him too. He's a little bit older and 
it was a really special relationship to craft with him and he I often say he really gave me the gift of you know feeling like an athlete again and training like an athlete even if that's just for myself and to be the best player I could be so yeah I mean I think tennis isn't always the most accessible sport when you think about you know needing the space and the resources for the equipment and paying for coaching but if you can find a you know a good friend or a good person kind of in your circle who can spend some time with you and help you get the basics down and from there it can really you can really kind of do anything and play with anyone so it's a maybe a high barrier to entry at first but it quickly quickly goes down I think that's a great idea actually to get someone if you can find someone it's obviously mm -hmm. tennis can sometimes feel like too competitive of a sport like where everybody yeah. wants to win or mm -hmm. it's a lot about like measuring your ego against each other that's just my feeling where I feel mm -hmm. like maybe pickleball is a little bit easier to get into so that's why players do that or paddling mm -hmm. in, in Europe uh, yeah. but with tennis it's good to have someone kind of help you through that kind of first phase where it's where it's quite difficult and um, yeah. I, I, I agree with that do you watch a lot of tennis? You're doing these rundowns every, uh, is it every day or every week? You're doing them quite frequently, right? Yeah, I, I, well, so I've always watched a lot of tennis. That's been a constant for me. My dad um, was has always been just a general big sports watcher. So he got me into watching tennis amongst other sports. But, um, you know, early, only just this year decided to kind of do commentary around it and just share my love and passion for it through social media. But yes, I try, my goal is to try to post five days a week. And uh, when there's big tournaments going on or, um, you know, things that are exciting in terms of the play itself, I try to commentate on it. But I also am aware I'm not, uh, I'm not a coach or a tennis expert per se. So I try to keep the rhetoric around uh, kind of the basics that most people can understand and share the stories around the tennis rather than kind of the technicalities itself so like what the story is behind the person what makes the win or loss special or unique and what's challenging about it as opposed to you know breaking down their shot uh, selection or specific strategies which i myself might not always fully understand I think that's that's a, a good idea though because it's also I think one way that tennis needs to reach more people to to kind of put the bridge down a little bit so people can actually mm -hmm. access it more easily like you said uh, and you're a digital strategist in your day profession mm -hmm. do you think tennis needs help in terms of of <laughs> like marketing in terms of the whole sport or the organizations within the sport Yes, a blanket uh, answer would be yes. I think there's a lot of things from a marketing perspective that tennis could do better that would benefit the growth of the sport, the players and the fans. Um, you know, whether the, whether one looks at how tennis is actually structurally organized, you know, through multiple different organizations makes marketing challenging in itself. Uh, the fact that we kind of have different broadcasting rights and different channels that can, you know, provide different commentary and you know just in the u.s alone trying to figure out who hosts which slam and which masters and where i can watch it is quite a barrier for most people because it switches from tennis channel to tennis tv to Eurosport to espn and you're just like where is it i just want to watch <laughs> so um yeah i think from a marketing perspective there's so much that they could do and especially for me i feel passionately about the women's side and the WTA stepping up. I think the WT WNBA is a really great example of, you know, women's sport that has put in a lot of work over the last few years and has seen some really great results with the WNBA finals happening 
just this week it was a really good turnout i think um the women's soccer league in europe is doing really well with promoting women's sport so i think uh, the wta has some room to improve and an opportunity to step up to really help grow the women's game and get them on a level playing field as the men yeah because i think like women's tennis is maybe the strongest female sport there is like at least financially <laughs> and and knowledge around the world uh, so the product itself is really strong so it's obviously shouldn't need that much uh, push in the right direction but sometimes you feel it because i also agree with that there's so many organizations all the slams atp wta why we have an atp and wta is is a confusing to, to say the least you know you, you don't understand mm -hmm. what, what is why is this setup you know and if you come from other sports you get quite confused about many things in tennis scoring <laughs> you know yes um how the, the like the systems with the ATP 500,000 or, or even, mm -hmm. and then you go to the WTA and it has like slightly different yeah. WTA 125 is an ATP 250 and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's very, very confusing. Yeah, it's confusing. And I think, as you say, the product is there. And in a way at the moment, I find the women's game really interesting because there are so many different storylines and so many players who are capable of, of winning the bigger tournaments and we're, you know, on the men's side, the last 20 years, the storyline's kind of been the same. So it's exciting to see that shifting too. But I, as you say, the product's there and I think it's just about getting the brands involved. I also think with the women's game, it's like there's so much you can do from a branding perspective, whether that's merchandising, clothing, jewelry, um, all of those kind of markets are not as, uh, or industries aren't as invested in the sport as they think they could be. and. Um, there are so many good names in the top 20 who would, you know, be great brand ambassadors and do a really good job of promoting the sport beyond just the court, but kind of everything around it. So I'd love to see, um, you know, the sport of tennis be able to capitalize on those types of partnerships and opportunities as well. I agree. I think it's a little bit sometimes too traditional in a way, like the structure is mm -hmm. like really traditional and the organizations are just doing the same thing year after year. And it's really up to mm -hmm. the players to kind of go beyond that and do like yeah. collabs or crossovers or try to get deals. I mean, now on the men's store, we've seen like even like Gucci and, and bigger kind of fashion brands get into tennis, which I mean, there's huge room also on the WTA, of course, where I'm mm -hmm. Kano, she has Prada, I think. So there's there should be lots of opportunities in tennis, but you're not yeah. seeing them as much as you probably would imagine, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I again, I think about things like uh, the tunnel walk that they do um, for the NBA and how the players these days all have stylists and people pay attention to what they're wearing and they're really folded into the cultural fabric of American society. But also, you know, they all have big social media channels and they're able to reach people not just in the US, but across the world who follow the sport and generate interest in them as an individual but then also as a part of a team. And because tennis is an individual sport, and as you say, kind of the onus is on them to go out and get these types of brand deals. I think it would be great to kind of flip the switch and see what uh, the actual kind of organizations could do to facilitate some of those partnerships and get some more of these brand deals done because at the end it benefits not just the individual, but the sport as a whole. And we've also seen such a rise in athleisure wear and people kind of liking that tennis style that's a little bit country club type of look maybe it's it's not quite as schlumpy as just a normal tracksuit and a hoodie you can kind of you know feel a little bit more sophisticated and we've seen so many of these brands 
have a good go at entering the space or revamping their you know clothing lines from Wilson to Lululemon but they don't have the big name players on their roster and they're not doing kind of anything beyond just the clothing itself we'd love to see you know what's the player turning up in when they get to the court or what are they wearing in their press conference like are there opportunities to kind of help them elevate that so we can generate some more impressions not just on on tv but on social media which at the end of the day is where most of young people's eyes are turning to so we want to focus on generating more in that space yeah and that's a huge opportunity i think sometimes that i mean one of the things that make you shake your head is when players turn up to the court and they wear the same outfit and you're like yes you can't even tell them apart you know what is mm -hmm. this because nike or wilson or whoever is the main sponsor of these two players gave them the same outfit for this match yeah. that is a grand slam quarterfinal or something and you're yeah. like how can this even happen on this stage like there should be some communication but someone should should put this question and i think it also yeah. makes sense because both on the women's and the women's side you, there's a lot of room for like using using fashion to kind of show your personality a bit more mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's only like yeah nick curious he brings he wears a basketball jersey because he loves basketball mm -hmm. and the you know the big headphones and stuff like that there's very few guys that wear something different and on the women's side i think it's it's better because women's apparel is, is looking better where guys mm -hmm. are pretty boring i would say overall mm -hmm. there's not much um much happening in that space but mm -hmm. but you can definitely do more i think so yeah and you know personality is a part of of tennis i think because nobody plays exactly the same way and your style of play your on-court look the way you hold yourself that's all a part of the attraction of the sport itself and you know we like certain players for certain behaviors or we remember them for their looks and style and kind of what they brought to the court and you think of some of the best you know best legacies a lot of them had really great style or unique looks or tried something different and they also had you know personality or a way about their game that was memorable so from just a player perspective, I think looking at that and spending time on it and working with these brands and saying, hey, you know, if this girl is wearing a, a red dress, I want to wear a black dress or, you know, vice versa on the men's side, um, that they should be demanding, you know, some variety and some um, unique styles that help them stand out and help them, you know, gather fans both for them individually and as, as a whole. Yeah, I agree. Uh, do you think there's, are there any kind of players on the WTA tour then specifically that stand out to you? Like that are exciting to watch that seem to be doing, you know, the right thing with the marketing and everything around the, that stuff that stands out? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Marta Kustuk is doing a good job of her kind of self-branding. You know, she's obviously worked really hard with Wilson over the last uh, year or so, switching from Nike. And Wilson's really done a good job of, you know, going from a frumpy kind of fuddy-duddy old man's brand to something that feels much more young and um, is a much more attractive setup than it used to be. So I think she's done a good job of looking for those opportunities. But, uh, you know, Radicani would probably be an example of some people pointing the fingers of her doing too much. Uh, you know, she's I think she's with Dior, but she's, you know, at different fashion week programs and she's got series with hsbc and tiffany and all sorts of different partnerships but you know and it's unfortunate she's injured at the moment but i do think she's done a great job of growing her personal brand and ultimately that helps to bring fans to the games because people know her outside of just tennis and 
Kuros is another good example of somebody whose personality is bigger than the game himself. And so um, I think we're still seeing on the women's side like who that kind of big personality is going to be. But if I had to pick someone from the top 10 at the moment, it's probably Sabalenka because she's more of the kind of louder personality type. She's funny. She's kind of charismatic. She's got some of these unique um, outfits now from Nike. I think New York being the first time she had that. So she's kind of strikes me as that person who wants to be more extroverted whereas a Shriantek or a Rebakina is much more subdued much more quiet and kind of intentionally so so maybe it doesn't suit everybody to kind of have that louder personality and, and seek these type of opportunities off the court because it might be a distraction for them exactly but I think also that's also their personality so it just kind of shows yeah. in their way they acting and they're talking to their box and everything about them and mm -hmm. i think in tennis we need contrast right so mm -hmm. it's so important to have contrasting players because that creates a much more exciting match if you have a like you know Bory McEnroe whatever like someone who's like more like Shviontek playing someone who's a little bit crazy or very mm -hmm. outgoing and do you know outbursts and everything much better for the crowd I mean, we're, that's the product we have to sell. Like, there has to be some excitement. Mm -hmm. if, if there are two very subdued people hitting great backhands, it's not the best product, maybe, as it can be, I think. Yeah, exactly. That The personality point is spot on, and the crowd wants something to kind of bite on and react to. I think that's why people love the characters like a Kyrgios or a Medvedev or, you know, Sabalenka with her loud grunts. Or, you know, we want a little bit of controversy is something to talk about and for me this is just an anecdote but it's one of the reasons why like i don't totally love casper rude i'm like please smash a racket like i want to see you get mad at some point like i can see it in your face you're holding it all inside and i like players that allow me to kind of ride that wave with them as a spectator that's much more fun than kind of being like oh I got to be just as buttoned up as, as this guy and I'm feeling more emotional than they are apparently. <laughs> I I think like some players looked at what Fed did and they think that's the way forward even if it may, <laughs> might not suit their personality. That's just a, a wild guess but I feel like mm -hmm. you know, he was really feisty and crazy as a, a you know junior player and then he mm -hmm. calmed down and he won so many slams. Yeah. But you need to kind of play your personality. You see that Novak, he seems to like when there's a lot of animosity and he, he seems mm -hmm. to act well with that. A, a mm -hmm. person like Shvontek, she likes the least issues as possible because she has fantastic tennis. So if it's just tennis mm -hmm. for her, she can just play her game and be in her zone. So if someone's going to beat her, they might want to, you know, create a little bit of chaos, a little bit of drama, you know. And and I think for watching it, it's much better to see that. You know, I, I, I much prefer there's some aggro some kind of stuff happening that's a storyline that's not only 1540 and 5 yeah yeah well said i think that's exactly right it's it's much more attractive as a fan when you have something to to grab onto beyond just a uh, pure tennis maybe the organization should encourage it a bit maybe it's in the rule book i'm just you know thinking out loud but it's like you know you get punished you get fines yeah. you get everything if you just as look at someone throwing the racket you get a fine like it's it's they, they go to quite extreme ways at really encourage not encouraging any kind of emotional outburst i mean some players go crazy because tennis is a sport that drives you crazy and yeah. you can see some some bad stuff but that's also a part of being a professional athlete right you have a mm -hmm. lot of on the line there and yeah. emotions are running high and it can lead to mental issues uh, off the court and stuff, but that's that's a part of it, the, the whole ride. 
Yes, I do think the etiquette of tennis sometimes can get in the way, both from a fan perspective and a player perspective. So, like, one personal anecdote is I like to play a tennis tournament in the summer as a part of a, you know, local tennis club. And as much as I love the club, they think very highly of themselves. Like, we dress in all white. It's, you know, this whole tradition. And when I played the tournament last year for the first time, I was like, oh, my goodness, you know, these people come and watch. And, like, I better not say come on or, you know, show any type of, like, anger or rage because they'll probably tell me off for it and then uh i ended up losing in the final and i was so frustrated because i was like you know what i just i just really wasn't myself and when i play i'm you know the swear words are coming out like i gotta yell at myself to keep concentrating stay awake whatever it is so this year i i did my thing i still lost but i i played my game and i was much happier with the result and that meant, you know, there was come-ons after after different points. If I hit winners, I was, I wanted the crowd involved. I wanted a little bit of, of something. I asked my friends to come and watch. And, of course, uh, a couple of weeks after the final, I got a phone call that was like, so, you know, we're not too sure about some of the people in the crowd and, you know, <laughs> some of the etiquette. And I was just like, are you joking me? Like, what is this? You know, I want to compete. I want to have fun. Like, you wouldn't have this at a five-on-five basketball game like we don't have this type of etiquette in any other sport and of course I'm gonna say good shot if it's a good shot but I don't think there should ever be a situation where a player can't you know have their you know speak and be able to say come on and you know have volume to themselves I think some of the criticism that like Ben Shelton gets for example is ridiculous I mean he's such a good sportsman he you know says good shot he applauds the opponent when they deserve it but if he wants to let out a big roar after he's had a good hold in a service game and that helps him play and deal with the pressure he should do it and he certainly shouldn't get you know reprimanded for it or a bad reputation you know for being unsportsmanlike I think sometimes the etiquette goes way too far in tennis and it's not very natural Uh, you really don't have that in any other sport no, it, it it seems like it's a little bit almost made up. But like it, I mean, I, I understand. Like for example, Nick, that he's curious that he's was frustrated with this for so long because if you're watching other sports, you're seeing all the emotions where you know on, on their sleeves, and then you you're playing in Wimbledon and you cannot do anything, you know. And it's mm-hmm. like it, it must be so tough to contain that emotion. And some players are great at doing it, and it works for them. But some players mm-hmm. like you maybe want to be a bit more like Vamos and look at their box and be you know more engaged and and that's a part of it that that's great like I think it it brings also more energy to the whole match because then the opponent maybe wants to win even more so it's mm-hmm. it's like there's a bit of more feisty energy than it's just like a lukewarm oh well done uh, well done to you well done to you yeah. it's like <laughs> yeah that's not really you know that's exciting to watch this you know <laughs> no exactly and I think if you're somebody who's played sports other than tennis that concept makes a lot more sense to you um because it's not a natural experience and I think as you say like if you have one player that's the more contained type they need to also learn to not be bothered by what's going on at the other side of the net you know you you, you got to focus on your own game and do what you got to do within a, a respectful limit to win the match or play your best tennis and at the end of the day I think any at any level you just want to to have the best match that you possibly can from both sides and both players can play their best tennis and that decides the outcome and 
as long as that's within, you know, a, a, a good limit and a decent boundary, then I don't think there should be so much uh, respectful play. <laughs> it, uh, I don't think it benefits anybody, to be honest. No, maybe it's like it feels like an old fashioned old man elitist kind of thing, you know, yes. uh, and if you look at like YouTube videos and you, you check like there's even channels devoted to tennis drama or the biggest mm -hmm. I, I watched a video today, just pure coincidence that Hugo Gaston was one of the biggest clowns in tennis. And <laughs> because he's like, he has some cheating allegations, he's been getting a lot of fines. He seems yeah. to be acting a bit not so great. Uh, yeah. And people want to watch that. I mean, even mm -hmm. you might dislike the guy and say okay this is not fair whatever but but at least it's fun to watch you know it's yeah. entertainment so it is and it's the, the same principle as like boxing for example as an individual sport like the bigger the build-up is before the match like the more drama and uh you know animosity between the fighters the more people want to watch and i think that's the other thing that sometimes people forget with tennis is yes it's a sport but all sports are a show at the end of the day. And we want to sell out as many stadiums as possible. Um, you want to have as many people watching on TV as possible. And the way to do that is to, you know, A, have a personality that's appealing to, you know, to your audience and B, stir the pot a little bit. Let's have a little bit of drama. You know, that, that again, like there's a reason why people who don't watch tennis watch Nick Kyrgios because he always has some, sorry, shit to say. And it's gonna, you know, do the rounds on social and whether you like him or not it's it grows the sport and um in in a world where there are so many different sports that are growing and we're competing for attention we should applaud that and not uh, reprimand it at all times i think yeah i think people put they connect who people are on the court with who they are off the court which i mm -hmm. i think is not really true like i mean yeah. you can think what you will about Novak on the court but if you, when you meet him off the court he's like the nicest guy ever uh, and same with Nick you know it's like he mm -hmm. might be hating himself and talking out loud and disturbing people in a way on the court but that doesn't mean he's like that off the court but people connect them too much and they mm -hmm. read maybe too much into it but if you play yeah. tennis on any level you know that tennis is a mind game like you go crazy mm -hmm. when you play tennis tennis can mm -hmm. really like make you want to throw your racket into the fence every other point mm -hmm. so it, it's yeah. like you have to respect that emotion as well. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it's not just tennis, it's every sport. Like the competitor is different from the person. And, you know, you just can't expect somebody to be like, you know, who they are when you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation when they're competing in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. Like that's, that's a pressure that most of us can't understand. Uh, with that much money on the line, with your reputation on the line as an individual, the way that you handle that or manage that, like we're so judgmental of it, when the majority of us, you know, would probably be handling it much worse than they are in that type of situation. So I think sometimes it's, uh, you know, taking things with a little bit of a pinch of salt when you're trying to react to how somebody's behaving on court and just put yourself or think about what it would be like to be in their situation. And it might, uh, put things into context as to why they're acting a certain way yeah you can just go to any club level tournament i think you're gonna see some <laughs> yeah. crazy behavior like if i go to an open here i play one few weeks ago like i saw some shit on the, in the court next to me i was like <laughs> oh my god what are they doing like they're screaming at each other it's like w not nice words i'm like well this yeah. this is more exciting than my match <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you wanted to stop and watch
Yeah, I yeah. think at the end of the day, like, and, and this is how I am with my friends when we play it. When we're playing, it's all go. Like, say whatever you want, do whatever you want. You can, you know, if you want at the end of the day, you get bragging rights for the rest of the week. But as long as we can still uh, go and get a drink afterwards or, you know, have a chat afterwards, I think it's all, you know, within good spirit of, of competing and just um, wanting to play well. And, of course, there's going to be some people who are like, no, like... <laughs> you did this and you called my shot out and we'll never be friends and you're just like ah oh, okay well you know sorry like at the end of the day everybody wants to win and it's a good feeling to pursue and at uh at a non-professional level i think some people just uh need to just appreciate that we both want to play tennis and love tennis and relax a little bit <laughs> yeah and i think that having a drink afterwards whether it's coffee or, or a beer or whatever but it's like mm -hmm. you know you can you can have a heated match and still like be normal afterwards it's not that yeah not that difficult like you just need to contain yourself a little bit like from that feeling of losing or someone calling a ball in or out whether you thought it was right or not you know yeah compartmentalize it i think again like that's what some of the best players in the world do they're able to you know, have that on court life and separate that off court life. And I think the more that one can recognize that at the end of the day, it's just a game, you know, and a lot of us as adults lose that love of, of playing games, whether it's sport or board games or anything where you just kind of have a little bit of mild competition. And I think it's good. It's healthy and competing at any level is um, good for the mind and the body. So just acknowledging that and being able to keep the two a little bit separate is it's easy enough in my opinion uh staying on the topic of, of like marketing tennis what do you think mm -hmm. of, of breakpoint did you watch it on netflix do you think it was good or or what what would you improve yeah good question so i've watched breakpoint i also watched all of drive to survive who were the producers of breakpoint and also full swing which was the golf version of of breakpoint and if i rank the three breakpoint is at the bottom of the of the three because i think if you're a tennis fan and you watched that season you knew a lot of what was coming in breakpoint like there wasn't anything that i watched there where i was like oh that's an interview i haven't seen or a storyline i didn't really know whereas you know i watch f1 week in week out i watch the um the interviews and I always learn something new or figure out some sort of nuance when I watch Drive to Survive the season after. And there was just, especially in part one, lacking a little bit of that like, you know, true digging deeper personality. I wanted to understand a little bit more about the rivalries or like relationships of, you know, this team took this physio from this player and now, you know, there's, there's animosity there or, there's a little bit of, um, you know, th that underneath part that's not just the outcome of the match. I think they got a little bit of that in part two with Sabalenka in particular. I think they did a good job of kind of showing, yeah, some of that off-court reaction to everything going on in Russia and Ukraine and kind of how that was impacting her and what other players were saying about her and, you know, the way she's been treated in the locker room. Whether we, you know, agree with it or not, I felt like that got a little bit underneath the surface and helped us understand who she was. Um, so if they come back with a season two, I'd like to see a little bit more in that direction. Because if you're a tennis fan already, it just wasn't giving me anything new. 
I I think the same. I mean, I, I think the the issue is a little bit like okay for the tennis fan, it's not deep enough. Mm-hmm. But I think that also goes for many sports fans in general because if you just go back and look at the sports results, you don't want a summary of the season. You want yeah. like what you said. What are the relationships? How is this guy or girl really off the court? You want to get more mm-hmm. understanding off the court. And mm-hmm. I think they didn't really go deep enough. They just show like, oh, here's uh, Tomjanovic and Matteo Berrettini. Most people who watched it, they knew like, oh, they broke up like six months ago. What is this? Like, yeah. it's not that that's not unless you're going to lead to like why they broke up or something mm-hmm. that it's not going to be deep enough for you to kind of get invested in this situation. So I think also with tennis, like you're a whole season after it felt more like that than it does in, in Drive to Survive, for example, like mm-hmm. it felt like you're getting the same product. It's just one year later and nicely packaged by Netflix. You know, mm-hmm. it's nicely packaged, but you, you want more juice on the bone, you know? Yeah, well said. I think that's exactly it. You know, um, we 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 don't want the summary of the season. I I think that's exactly right. So, you know, hopefully they'll they'll get a season two and they continue to be able to film. I know that uh, Sviantek wasn't very happy with her cut, so I, it sounds like she won't be participating in another round, um, which was was interesting. But I'm also not super surprised based on her personality. I feel like she's just so private she wouldn't have wanted to get any into anything much deeper anyway and uh i I know her coach got a lot of criticism online which didn't sit well with her so um yeah a shame to lose her but hopefully they'll add a couple other interesting names in and i think that's the other thing is like it doesn't always have to be the big guys like with drive to survive they don't always have max verstappen or not every episode is lewis hamilton it's like the drivers at the back of the grid that's the most interesting because they're the ones that crash into each other every week and you know probably have the most dramas you know it's the tightest between them and getting points and their team you know financially suffering or not and I think that's kind of the same for tennis you know players that are hanging around that top 50 and over zone like those are the guys that probably have a lot of drama and kind of you know um, things going on or storylines that normal tennis fans might not know where they have the most on the line in terms of, hey, you know, if I win this first round, that's that's 80 grand more than I made last year. That's huge for somebody, you know, like a Liam Brody or someone like that who got to a second, third round at Wimbledon at a home tournament. Like, I think those are the types of players they should also try to tap into a little bit more because not just from like a breakpoint perspective, again, also from a marketing or branding perspective, like it doesn't always have to be your top 50 players. Like some of these girls and guys outside of the top 50 have good social media following they're funny they're relatable their journey seems a little bit more you know realistic than some of the top players and their relationships with brands can also be really interesting and um maybe a little bit more personal you know it's hard to connect with someone who's number one in the world and is winning slams it's much more relatable to speak to someone who's just trying to qualify or just trying to you know, win a round or two here or there at a tournament because, you know, most tennis players can relate to that type of feeling. So um, I think it's it's not just about going for the best of the best, but recognizing that there's really awesome storylines at multiple levels of the sport. Yeah, I, I think I, I've said that before. I think like that if you go down to challenger level or players that are struggling on both women's and men's side, it's not necessarily struggling, but they're like you said, like... A, uh, great point like if you look at tennis it's there's a you know a level which is hard to relate to and they live also 
they can afford to be private. They don't need any publicity. Like a guys like, yeah. you know, they, they, they don't need to be in the spotlight because they're already in the spotlight as a pro athlete, right? But if you mm -hmm. have a player who's 200 in the world, this could be a great bonus for their career. They can grow their social media. And if they're engaging enough person, doesn't matter if they reach top 100 or whatever happens, it's exciting for people to follow. You know, it's like, wow, yeah. I can follow this player. Doesn't matter. Like, I mean, if you look at Felix Mischke, who was on my pod as well, like he's, he's mm -hmm. you know, thousand trying to become thousand in the world. People follow his journey like crazy. You know, it's it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's that easy. You know, you don't need to go for the stars, right? Yeah, well said. I mean, it's it's the it's the people at that kind of you know cusp of trying to go pro, you know, who are who are make, trying to make ends meet, or that that story about um, one of the guys who played in. A Florida tournament this year. Who's like a investment banker, uh, yeah, yeah. real estate guy. I, I know, yeah, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, awesome story. It Up generated here. so much, um, you know, news and excitement of like, oh my god, like this guy did this. Like that's so amazing that he still has the love for it. That he still can like get out there and compete. So I think it's you know it's trying to encourage folks that yes, like tennis might not be the biggest most dominant sport. But that doesn't mean that when you make a show about it, you have to have the only the top 10 players or the very best players, you know, who who are a part of it, because I don't necessarily think that they're the most interesting ones per se. Yeah. <clears throat> it's fun to see kind of the unfinished product and the person that's struggling to make it work, but has got a love for the game that's so deep and passionate that they're still going. doesn't matter if they're thousand in the world, 200 or top 50, like they're still you know, out there every day competing and working their, their hardest to be the best they can be, which is admirable. Yeah, and it's more fascinating to see the depth because tennis has this stark, like, decline. Like, if you start at, at the top, mm -hmm. you're living a relatively glamorous life. You can have very nice fashion brand sponsors. As soon as you drop below, like, 100 or 200, it's not glamorous anymore. It's like you have to travel to <laughs> Tunisia to play three futures in a row. Hopefully, you can mm -hmm. get some points so you can, don't have to qualify in the next tournament. You're living in some pretty shitty hotel like yeah. that stuff is more in engaging to watch in my opinion uh, obviously not so nice for the player but then y you mm -hmm. can make a lot more drama out of it like it can be yeah. much more engaging as a storyline and i think sometimes in tennis we forget the stories and that's the same kind of going back to what we talked about before like uh, Nick Kyrgios is a story in himself you know uh, Sabalenka is a story in herself so you want to get to the core of the story but sometimes it's just like very, you, you surface, you know, go on the surface of, of 10 different players. And, mm -hmm. and like you said with Kasper, I'm not, you know, I, I, he seems like a super nice guy. Yeah. I don't watch, I'm not going to go and tune in on his matches. Like my friend is, is one of his friends <laughs> and they're both Norwegian. So obviously he's going to be like, oh, let's watch Kasper. I'm like, you know, I can watch something else, you know, it's, yeah. it's not the most exciting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And. I think you're right. Like it, it's this, it's the storylines a little bit, you know, at the bottom of the uh, of of the pyramid that are most exciting. And I also think, from like a commentary perspective, you know, not just at the slams, but you know, some of the bigger tournaments, the five hundreds, the thousands, like it's the same crew of commentators week in week out most of the time, and it's always the same stories. Or they're always commenting on, you know, very similar things of like, oh, you know, they their ball toss is wrong or their footwork on this shot is just bad and that's why they keep missing it's like yes you need a little bit of that kind of like analytical breakdown but again i think for most of the kind of wider tennis audience like 
they want to know about who this person is, you know, where they've come from, their background, like their struggle, who they roomed with for the last three years or, you know, who, who their closest friends are on the tour and kind of what their personality is like on and off the court. And I don't think they at the moment do a very good job of telling that story and help us as fans get to know the players. And I think, you know, like we said at the beginning, that's just... um well, it hurts the sport and the players because it doesn't allow us to make a personal connection. And so that means you don't remember their name. And when you go to a tournament, you might not go and see that person. Whereas if you actually heard their story and felt an emotional connection to them, you might be following them and looking to watch them when you're at a, at a tennis tournament. So I think there's room for improvement on that front as well. For sure. You're a very good analyst of the game. I hear that even more today than just watching the round down. But would you ever want to go into kind of broadcasting or commentating or being a part of tennis productions somewhere outside the Instagram or the social media world? Yes, I would love to. It's definitely a dream of mine. I'm hoping to to use my social media to make that work for myself. I obviously don't come from a broadcasting or traditional media background, so it would be a different route. But, you know, I would love to share my passion on a larger stage and again try to tell those more unique stories more interesting stories and make the sport appealing to a younger generation so hopefully that opportunity will come around sometime but if not we'll we'll keep going on instagram hopefully at some point i'll do a youtube channel so i can go in a little bit more depth on uh you know thoughts and feelings around tennis but i've realized that there's such an engaged community of folks around tennis online even if it's niche and small like people want to talk about it and so I think that's kind of what's taken me a bit by surprise and also excites me is that there are still a lot of people watching tennis and interested in tennis and folks that are kind of, you know, looking for ways to make it easier to follow along. And uh, that's kind of the market I'm trying to tap and we'll see where it goes. But commentary would be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and it would be great to see commentators from different backgrounds you mentioned it before it's always the same you know and I did like commentary once in Sweden for some TV when I lived there briefly and it was fun like it's a lot of fun and you depending on the team and the energy and the you know you have in the room it, it can be really like a great thing but if you always bring the same people it gets sort of stale right and you always have mm -hmm. the same perspective exactly what you said like they you know we don't always need to know the ball toss. We want to know, like, he broke up with his coach because they couldn't get along about this. That's a drama. That's personal connection. Yeah. Um, technical stuff, add it. But, and also something that frustrates me is, like, often when you watch commentary, it's, it's, I know it's, it, they have to be very fast with their take, but it's often just reciting what happened. So it's more like, yeah, yeah uh, she hit a backhand in the net. And you're like, yeah, everyone, <laughs> even the new player, new viewers can see that get yeah. more you know depth or, or maybe be quiet and wait for the next moment and then you add some kind of really interesting fact about what you're seeing so uh, I think that would be cool I would, would like more angles of commentary that would be great yeah for sure I agree with you when it comes to uh, doing social media I mean you're doing like okay five a week um, time wise it's I know it's tough but it's obvious that that there's a lot of online coaches so the coaching mm -hmm arena of uh, Instagram is is kind of I would say saturated I, I would you know there's a billion of them you know I had many of them on my podcast so so I have mm -hmm. a good feeling for that and yeah. it's always interesting to talk coaching and stuff but you need alternate perspectives you need a little bit of a like how can we make tennis big picture we're not going to make tennis big picture by saying how to hit a forehand it's not going to do it it's going to help some players but there's already lots of that um, 
have you watched like UTS? What do you think about the Ultimate Tennis Showdown? Is is that like a route to go to make it more exciting, or is that just like, uh, you know, circus? <laughs> yes, I've watched UTS, and I think the more and more I think about it, and the more I learn about, you know, players' feelings at all levels or around specific issues, you know, this year about the balls or scheduling uh, challenges and things like that. The more I think that there's room and opportunity for an alternative type of approach to tennis and something that forces us to kind of rethink how tennis is structured as a whole. Because from a high level, I think the season is so long, the travel is so insane. It, and for players, you know, aren't from Europe or the US, most of them aren't going home for five, six months a year. It, it, it's just. I don't feel like the way it's set up produces the best end product possible. And so I encourage alternative, you know, ways to approach tennis that might as a whole kind of lead to a rethink of how tennis is organized and structured. I'm not sure that I totally like would love to see UTS as like a, a pro league or something as a you know a viable alternative to how tennis is currently run but as a means of putting on a different show and trying to you know think about different ways to approach the game I think it's fantastic and I encourage that and so it's great to see you know an opportunity to reach new fans for fans to get to know players a little bit differently outside of a you know such a competitive environment to watch them play because I think that's something that also people forget is like the way we play in practice under pressure is so different than without pressure. You know, a player might try different things or unique shots or, you know, kind of have different types of rallies when there isn't, you know, something so big on the line as an end result. So I think that's another fun aspect of UTS. I also think the commentary on UTS is fun. The way they kind of like speak to players, you know, mid-match or um, kind of the coaching that they allow from p player to player. I just I like the way that they've rethought it and the big names that they've got a part of it and I think it just uh, facilitates the conversation that needs to be had around how tennis should rebrand and remodel itself for the future generation. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. Like it's it's a kind of it facilitates. I, I mean, I think maybe it's a bit extreme, but that's a way of opening doors to other people's minds and saying, okay, you're doing it like this. I mean, if we look at like environmental friendly aspects, it's just like people are flying all over the place all the time. They're mm -hmm. not sleeping well. It's a struggle to get transportation. I mean, if you watch like uh, Kasatkina and uh, and her her uh, wife's girlfriend's uh, channel, which is great, uh, you see like the frustrations of actually because they really go behind the scenes, which is something I I really think is great. So, mm -hmm. uh, but but tennis could be structured maybe you know in a league way or you know having less travel having the players more in one spot longer possibly they really need to challenge i think the the system and i think that that's a good thing that it does and, and i you mentioned the coaching aspect i think I, I like the idea of having like a coach even if it's just a, a, like a timeout and if they're like mic'd up in some way or there's some kind of translation because that that conversation is fascinating you see it in other sports mm -hmm. like what is this guy gonna tell him now after this really shitty first set you know mm -hmm. <laughs> well how is he gonna change it and that gives the spectators something to kind of grab onto and like, oh yeah, he talked about uh, hitting more, you know, serves on his backhand and then they can watch for that. So they learn a bit more and the whole watching experience gets more engaging. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think there's a little easy changes to make with, you know, big outcomes that can be super interesting and generate a lot of conversation around the game. Because I think that's the other thing with tennis is the people who, you know, are running the big media and broadcast operations have been so focused on TV for the longest time. And we know that the future of, of, of TV and sports is streaming and it's our, how we consume sports via social media and the conversations that the fans are having on social are just as important to monitor and listen to as the stats and numbers that we see on the TV. And so I think tennis is a little bit behind in that way in that they haven't you know, necessarily done the best job of finding those little clips and nuggets. And to me, one good example of it is Tennis Channel versus Tennis TV. So Tennis Channel has been been around for much longer, you know, has been on traditional cable network TV. They have 500,000 followers on Instagram. Tennis TV is relatively new, new to the game, but what they do well is really great clips from the matches itself because not everybody has the time to watch every single match. They find the funny little, you know, memeable parts of it, the little nuances comes to mind recently as Medvedev taking his toy out of uh, Sinner's Trophy in China. And they have nearly 3 million followers on Instagram. And it just shows that when you pay attention to social and you think about content from a social first perspective, it's huge, not only for kind of them generating attention around their product, but also huge for the fans and huge for growing the sport and reaching a new audience. And I think that's something that like a tennis channel underestimates. And so finding little things like, you know, if you had a clip of, what this coach said to the player, I'm sure there would be many instances where a clip like that could go viral. And again, who does that benefit? It's like the sport as a whole, like we want more and more people to have conversations and that sort of social listening around tennis. And so what are little ways, little things that we can insert into the game that make, you know, social first content or that type of snippets um, relatable without having to kind of watch the full match or memorable. So I think that's a good suggestion. And there's other pieces from UTS that one could take from that too uh, that would make, you know, sharing things on social media and kind of attracting an audience outside of that traditional TV broadcasting realm much more achievable. Yeah, and isn't it weird that like Tennis TV, that's just ATP. So we get to that problem mm -hmm. again. Like where do I get WTA clips? Then I have to subscribe yep. to their servers, which is maybe different or have different jurisdictions, mm -hmm. I don't know. So it's like you need to be subscribed to so many services to just be a tennis fan, right? Which is yeah. it feels very strange because you want you want to watch both WTA, ATP, maybe you want to watch Challenger Tennis, I don't know, you know? So it's like, mm -hmm. uh, it's complicated to be a tennis fan. It is definitely complicated. And I think uh, originally the WTA was part of the tennis TV package and then they sort of had some sort of falling out and their contract didn't go through. and. I think the WTA is missing out big time on not being on tennis TV because really, I don't know where to watch them other than Tennis Channel or with the slams. It's really hard to watch WTA. And I think that's a huge uh, fuck up on their part, to be honest with you, because it's, uh, it's hot in the women's game. And I think there would be, when you serve women's tennis, people watch it. It's like when you go to a tennis tournament, you're not paying for you know, until the later ends of a, of a tournament, you're not paying for a men's ticket or a women's ticket. Like you're watching both, you know, when you go and watch a tournament. And I think that there is truth in saying that there's just as much interest 
in women's tennis as there is men's tennis when you expose them and you give people the opportunity to watch you generate those storylines i think best of three set tennis is just as interesting at times as best of five it's also much shorter much more attainable for a lot of folks and so yeah um it's a big shame the wta isn't a part of tennis tv and if i were in at any level of their uh leadership and in their organization i would be (laughs) pushing them to figure that one out because it's a big loss yeah there's been some pushes like publicly but it seems to end with just like a statement going somewhere and then it's like Mm -hmm. nothing really happens you don't see Mm -hmm. any real practical resolution or or an effort and actually joining these two organizations. I, I understand it's a huge thing, you know, because they, they got in that situation and now they have to get out of it, but it's it's still a bit sad. And when it comes yeah. to your to your own tennis, like you you are a competitive person. Do you have any goals mm-hmm. on your horizon of like playing more tournaments or you, you must like to play tournaments then if you're if you're in, into the competition part? <laughs> yeah, I do play a couple little tournaments here and there throughout the year. I am I'm still hanging on to that team sports background, so I am a much more competent doubles player than I am singles player. I do play a UTS league, doubles league in LA, so that's good fun. It's a nice way to meet people and, you know, play some good tennis, and doubles is usually less stressful for me uh, and much less complicated from a strategy perspective because I feel like my choices are much easier to make, you know, like... I'm like, I want to hit cross court until I see a down the line opportunity or I'm going to come to the net and just volley as well as I can. Whereas with singles, it's like, oh, do I go back cross court? Do I hit down the line? Do I bring him in? Do I go for moon balling? Like, what do I do? And I think that's what I've realized is the hardest about tennis. Like once you've got the fundamentals and the strokes down, it's like one thing being able to hit a tennis ball and a completely different thing being able to figure out a match. So I think for me, the goal is to maybe get over my my own fear a little bit of playing singles and and just be okay with losing a few times until I figure out how to be a consistent winner um because especially when uh you know you're at a like three five four oh level people are very consistent and it's it's hard to it's hard to hit past them so you you, you got to be patient and have that kind of self-confidence and belief so it's something I'm working on and I want to push myself to play a couple more singles leagues over the next year just so I can get over my my hump of and fear of losing. <laughs> Do you think that the doubles is a kind of underserved product in tennis like it could could re- reach more viewers if you pushed it a bit more? 100%. Yes, I think doubles is so much fun to watch, especially high level doubles. I mean, like I, I don't know how their reaction times are so fast, that their strategy is fantastic to watch. Um, I think it's totally underrated, um, you know, at the tour level. And I also think it would be fun to see, you know, some uh, element or incorporation of or requirement of singles players needing to play a certain amount of doubles each year. Um, because not only do I think it's like good for their game, I think it's... Um, again like bringing different personalities together like seeing how they play in doubles versus singles putting them up against traditional doubles teams like i think what kokonakis and curios did was so fun to watch because it's you know it disturbs what we think of as like the double specialists and i i like like taylor townsend and leila fernandez playing together like they're fun and interesting or taylor townsend and ben shelton uh, playing together i i love that coco plays doubles and pagula plays doubles together so i think 
it would be awesome to see more of that and to also encourage more singles players to be a part of the you know doubles format and compete alongside but again like if you have people who are teamed up like and then they play each other in a match like what's that going to be like or versus each other with different rivalries i think it's a lot of fun so i i would love to see more investment into doubles and again the storylines there and because it's it's still a lot of fun to watch i'm not sure why people would think it's so subpar to singles i think again that goes into like the etiquette conversation and you know people thinking so highly of themselves or their singles game when (laughs) doubles is those players are just as good yeah and i think players who struggle with the mental part of tennis because competing is is mentally draining for many Mm -hmm. players especially i think playing doubles gives you that extra teammate who you can encourage each other you have someone to rely on and you play for someone else so you don't yeah you can't really go into tanking mode or Mm-mm. you know get too down on yourself because you have to think of your partner so i think there's yeah. good learnings from doubles as well yeah and it's it's maybe a little bit more fun depending on you know who you are and how you approach it and hopefully you have a good relationship with your doubles partner and they help curb your highs and lows and and you do the same for them and there's something about that camaraderie of having somebody on the court with you and figuring out problems together. And you know, like yesterday, I was playing a doubles match. We won the first set easily, then we lost the second, and we go into the third set. You know, ten point tiebreak. I'm like, okay, so what are we gonna do? Like, what have we learned from second set, first set? Like, how are we gonna go about this differently? Like, let's, you know, it's just kind of that conversation, and it just makes things, especially at a, for me, at a lower level. A little bit less scary, um, a little easier to navigate, and um, I I like the responsibility of of taking care of my partner. I I've heard the opposite though. Some people are like, oh, I feel more nervous in doubles because I don't want to let my partner down, which I understand as well. And I think that's just where um, you know, people have different personalities for for team and individual sports. I'm I'm in the camp of being like. I'm gonna let my opponent or my partner down, uh, but I'm learning to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you have to be like, you have to get into it, and you have to learn the strategy. So if you play like I played with some Davis Cup players in in Malta and stuff, uh, you 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 start understanding so much strategy that you don't think about before, and that's actually mm-hmm. something that's quite exciting to learn and something that you could sell as a product as well i think because the strategy is completely different you have to think of tennis in a completely different way than if you just play singles which is just for like trying to hit the ball where the opponent is not Mm -hmm. yeah exactly it's 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 a different game and it's yeah it got a different approach and i think that again like all different kind of forms and variation of how tennis takes place is an opportunity to reach new audiences and and grow things depending on how we package them and tennis like you said at the beginning has has not changed for a long time it's been kind of stale in terms of implementing new rules regulations like it feels like the only things that have really been done is like hawkeye and and the coaching change but like in terms of formats like we really everything's been the same for as long as i can remember watching tennis so i i think it's understanding that change can be a good thing and revamping and rethinking how we market the sport package the sport how we reach new audiences is a really pressing question and challenge for this for for tennis as a whole because we run the risk of losing the focus and attention of you know a younger generation that does things differently and consumes media differently has different levels of attention span and are interested in different aspects of of sport not just the sport itself they they want to know 
again, those stories. So I think finding more ways to play tennis in different formats and market that is always an opportunity that one should pursue from a, from an organization perspective. Yeah, 100%. Your tennis background, like, so your father is a huge sports fan. You've been playing mm -hmm. netball and all that kind of sports. Uh, so you, is your whole family like that? Do you have brothers or sisters that are also into sports? No, actually, I have, well, I have an older sister um, and she probably couldn't be more the opposite for me when it comes to sports, but in a way that was a good thing growing up because we never competed with each other on anything like she was the uh academic musical one and i was the <laughs> sporty not so good at school type that you know just wanted to play games and um you know be outside and my mom is is pretty funny she she, she would probably tell you she hates sports in general and she doesn't like games so I, yeah, I definitely don't get it from her. Um, I, I get it from my dad. I mean, he always talked about like how he used to write for a sports newspaper growing up and how, you know, on the low, he did really wish he was a commentator or, you know, did something in the sports world, but in the end has been able to keep sports as a hobby for himself. And I think he probably has BBC Sport open all day and is consuming every article uh, posted there. So um it's definitely a gene i get from him and um yeah now now we're sending each other messages back and forth on twitter i got him on on twitter to send him messages so yeah he, he's he's the influence yeah and you can compare perspectives of of uh, tennis and how it's how it's going or like that's that's pretty good i think and not with yeah. your mother because she might get angry then but uh, <laughs> yes is she also a musician your mother or like your your sister or no um no not a musician she's well, she's a journalist. She's also a yoga teacher. So she's, it's not like she's unathletic. Uh, she, you know, takes good care of herself. She was a horse rider and a swimmer growing up. So she's sporty. She just uh, hates team sports. So hates anything with a ball. <laughs> and I'm like, I hate anything that doesn't have a ball. So I do not want to do yoga with you um, as much as I probably should. Uh, it's just not fun to me. But um, no, she's she's definitely athletic it's just not her cup of tea she's was a journalist as well as i mentioned she's um really into politics and is super intellectual not not uh belittling myself but i um i don't have as much of that gene as she does <laughs> it's nice to be different as well i think that's quite important yeah. but but yeah sometimes people who are really into yoga can be not so excited about sports because it's like plays on a different spectrum of what you mm -hmm. like kind of emotion like the sports is combative and yoga is kind of peaceful and tranquility and so it kind of mm -hmm. plays like different notes you can like both uh, and yoga is good for tennis uh stretching but you know it's not everyone's cup of tea you know it's it can be a mm -hmm. can be quite a like polarizing thing for for sports lovers yeah for sure i mean i don't know many people who are big like uh ball sports and tennis people who love yoga and I, I know a few but not not many most of us are like oh we got to stretch again like oh, i don't want to do this like it, it's just nothing but slow boring and painful <laughs> but as you say it's uh it's good for you so we we do it a little bit here and there that's good so you you moved from i mean you grew up in the uk mm -hmm. and now you're in la how did you end up yeah. in la studies or um well so i actually moved to the states in 2016 i was in school in pennsylvania on the east coast uh before i moved out to la and the east coast winters just did not do it for me i don't ever want to live through another one of those 
And um, I don't know, you know, growing up in London, the the big calling was I would always be like, oh, I want to go to Stanford in California. That would be amazing. And I, I didn't have the grades to get into Stanford, but that was always in the back of my mind that I wanted to get out to the West Coast. Um, and so I originally moved out here for a job. I um, worked for a creative agency. I was doing, uh, even though I work remotely, I was still doing like on-set production for a couple of different, you know, brands, which was a lot of fun. And um, I ended up leaving that job just because it, creative agency life can be all-consuming and leave for very little free time. And I felt like I was losing a lot of my own personal creativity. I think one of the things I learned in school about myself was that I, I actually am creative, even if I'm not artistic. Because I think something that uh, is often taught to young kids growing up is like, you're only creative if you can draw or you can paint or you can like, you know, make things. I didn't realize that you could be creative creative, and, you know, your strategy or how you think about, um, you know, marketing a product or in entrepreneurship, there's creativity. And so I found that in college about myself that I that I am actually a creative thinker and that I like to solve problems I just may not do that in the traditional sense of the word so I think that helped me unlock this kind of personal love for for learning you know new things whether that was teaching myself how to use like Premiere Pro and Photoshop to designing t-shirts and yeah, when I was working as, you know, 900 hour weeks, I just felt like I had no time for my personal projects and kind of finding my own passions. And it took me about um, six, seven months after I quit that job to like feel normal again and feel like I had enough free time to, you know, I was kind of over the tiredness and exhaustion of that life. And earlier this year in January was when I really kind of was like, oh, I have time now to to work on my own things and to have free time just to think and be creative I think that's something that uh, I've also come to appreciate is that you don't need to pack your day full every single day I think that's something I've learned about American culture is Americans love to be busy and love to always be having oh, I'm being super productive I'm doing this I'm doing that and I'm like you know being bored sometimes is a good thing like not having anything to do this afternoon allows me to sit down and like hey like you know, what do I want to make or like what do I like and what am I interested in and you know get off your phone a little bit and just sit and think um and so that's what gave me the the headspace to start doing the social stuff this year in January and I'm, I'm really grateful for it so the work-life balance I have now I work um at a tech agency it's much more uh sustainable they treat me much better and um, I, luckily, kind of my schedule is I work East Coast hours, so I start very early in the morning, but I'm done around 2, 3 p.m. So that gives me a lot of time back to work on my own things and play tennis and, you know, keep myself uh, entertained. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's very wise thinking, especially for a young age. I mean, uh, because, I mean, one of the books I'm reading right now is Joanne Hari uh, about like our lack of focus today and also like you mentioned American work culture. I, I used to like live in the US, work as a journalist. Uh -huh. And you work like I used to work. I was very young, you know. I used to work nine to nine, you know. It's like mm. completely crazy days. I was at the White House for, for half wow. a year, you know. Just like yeah, it was it was insane and, um, fun. But but also like you have no time at all to do anything of a hobby. And if you ask for one day leave, they like look at you and laugh. You're like, oh, I mean, you're yeah. a young person. You should you should be a slave, you know. <laughs> it's, it's like that. Yep. <laughs> so and also having worked in the creative uh, as a creative director. 
I know exactly what you mean about this like LA creative agent LA creative agency and if you're on sets and stuff and you're doing production for commercials or whatever it's a heavy heavy day you know you you don't have any time to breathe pretty much right yeah hardly even any time to sleep or eat like do anything to be honest with you um yeah and i think it's something that maybe the europeans get a little bit you know better over the americans like sometimes less is more you know you can be more productive when you've had a better night's sleep or when you've had a little bit of free time and a break you know i used to always be like hey like i'm not an ideas machine like i can't just like come up with stuff on the fly like you need to give me a couple days and you i might not be sitting here at my desk when i come up with it either i'm probably going to be going for a walk or doing something active or i'm sitting down and watching tv and something sparks an idea like i think um we just in america don't always have that balance very right and we undervalue rest recovery you know kind of personal value uh, personal wellness and we overvalue that kind of height productivity, you know, go, go, go type of mentality, which again is another reason why I, I prefer California or LA over like in New York, um, because it's just a little bit more, little bit less, like toned down a little more. New York is just like, you know, you take two seconds too long to order your coffee at the coffee shop and the people behind you, hurry up, you know, you should know what you want by the time you get to the cashier. And I'm like, geez, like, <sighs> relax um it's it's exhausting so yeah I, I think um having time for your own hobbies and your personal passions is super important and uh yeah you got to find a job that allows you to do both and i what i really relate to is like you mentioned like you need space to create ideas and i think that's mm -hmm. one of the concepts in the book that's why i mentioned the book i think i got sidetracked is that wandering like mind wandering is one of the best ways to be creative and let your mm -hmm. brain like process things and grow it's like sleep sleep you process stuff that happened in the day and mind wandering is when you're like that's why you always have ideas in the shower because you're not distracted by your phone someone mm -hmm. talking to you or notifications or a screen or something you're, you're not distracted mm -hmm. so uh, there are few moments in our modern lives where we're not distracted so just mm -hmm. allowing yourself to have breathing space and not doing anything, literally anything, like just walking around without even music in your ears is probably the best way to have creative ideas. But in a hustle culture, that's not really, that's, they don't really approve of like, oh, I'm just going to go for a walk. What? In the middle of this, yeah. like a walk? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, they it's so true. Like so it's so true. I, I remember reading a study recently about the importance of being bored. And I think one thing I'm really grateful for, for my parents growing up is like, we didn't have, uh, you know, gaming consoles or like electronics for entertainment. And there were also periods of time where my parents would be like, go to your room. And I'm like, yeah, I have nothing to do. And they're like, entertain yourself, like figure it out. You know, for my sister, she loved reading. That was her thing. You know, I had like a whiteboard in my room. I'd set up my dolls. I'd pretend to, you know, teach them or whatever class I was doing. Or, you know, I came up with all sorts of games as a kid that um, I think I got comfortable with A, being alone and B, just being bored. And I think as an adult, like the same still applies. Like you have to be able to entertain yourself. You have to be able to sit down and eat a meal without watching TV or listening to a podcast. Like just sit and eat. So many of us don't do that even like and think about how long you eat for it's not very long um and so a lot of kids these days lose that because we're constantly stimulated by something as you said and i think 
not only does that you know kind of impact your mental health but it also impacts your performance um in anything that you do whether that's on the tennis court or in your work or in your relationships and your friendships is like gotta have that like breathing room and that time to be to be bored it doesn't have to be every day but i i try and purposely like leave afternoons or weekends unscheduled no i'm not gonna go hang out with friends i just want to to be with myself and see what i come up with and that's always the times when i have the best outcomes the best ideas the best creative moments yeah and you feel really good that's what i've noticed like if you get that breathing space and you just be you know mm -hmm. in your own you know own air whatever you, you you just usually feel really good because you feel very connected to yourself and probably the rest of the world in a way because you're just not like completely overwhelmed with with a lot of distractions or a lot of you know chatter or stuff that that's most people are and when it comes to like social media i mean now you have a, a growing account and mm -hmm. you're probably going to have a lot of interactions. Uh, is that mm -hmm. something you are, you know, prepared for mentally, or are you learning as you go? Uh, what's what's your take on that? Or do you like, or do you have a good post and go strategy, or are you a bit <laughs> stuck on the the phone? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, ever since I started doing stuff on Instagram, my screen time has definitely gone up a lot. And but you know, that's part and parcel of the game and trying to grow community. I try to keep things relevant to like what I'm doing like to me if I'm engaging with other you know content creators and accounts within the tennis realm I look at that a little bit like work rather than just kind of like personal doom scrolling which don't get me wrong happens to me too but um I try to be intentional about it at least and I think you know one just accepts that there are some strange people online and people also feel entitled to say things that they would never say to your face and it's a very strange phenomenon about the internet i don't understand the psychology behind it personally like i you know if i don't like something that i scroll past on instagram i never take the time to like leave a comment that's like i hope you die or your mom gets cancer and you die is she dies a horrible death or like i've never like that has never come to mind so it always takes me by surprise a little bit when you get those types of hateful comments uh and like you look at their profile and it's somebody who's like a dad with kids and you're like uh like what are you doing like why are you spending time doing this like what happened to you like why are you feeling this way you know or like yesterday um you know i commented about how I, I'm well aware I'm not a professional player and that my strokes aren't 100% beautiful and the number of messages I'll get from people who aren't even coaches telling me like how crap my serve is or I need to do this or do that and I'm just like who gave you the right like to give a running commentary on what I'm doing and you know I can't imagine what it's like for players at a pro level who get this type of hate as an outcome of you know their matches and people betting on them and people telling them they're crap week in week out you know that's so hard to deal with at scale from a mental perspective and so i'm very sympathetic to that because one or two you know nasty comments can leave you feeling kind of crappy for the rest of the day or it's or it's particularly memorable and you're like oh i remember when someone you know told me this online like even if it didn't ruin your day you're not gonna forget it and it's hard to um, completely block it out too, because it's at the end of the day, it's public and it's there and you're probably gonna see it. So I think it's just trying to, as much as possible, like just understand that it's trolls, it's people who have their own pain and different things going on and try to remember like 
for all of the crappy things that go on there's a lot of fun there's a lot of love and there's a lot of really awesome people and so you know the 10% of the time that it's crappy and you get you know people coming after you the rest of the time it's um it's the positive side so that's kind of what I just try to remind myself and every once in a while I'll clap back and say my piece but um some of them are pretty funny too at the end of the day so yeah I think I think one just tries to be as positive as possible and surround yourself with people that you know do like what you're doing and leave you positive uh feedback and try and ignore the the bullshit <laughs> yeah you can always always block i guess but i know no, there's so many armchair experts in tennis like i mean i yes. talked to karu <laughs> who's a pro player and uh it, he he even gets advice like i i've gotten <laughs> loads of advice of having a shorter <laughs> swing or doing this from players that are probably worse than me over yeah. the years and and <laughs> if you're a coach they don't send advice because usually they know a bit more you know they understand mm -hmm. a bit more about the game and they realize it's not their place because you didn't pay them to get a yeah, coaching exactly. advice you know <laughs> but people love giving unsolicited advice you know it's generally yeah. something I, i'm sometimes shocked i'm like all right man you know good luck on your life you know buddy but it, it's just a part of it i guess but but it does sometimes uh take a bit of, of brain space uh, in your head that you're like because you can't it's so far from your own experience as a human being that you mm -hmm. can't understand the person it's like you just like you're trying to like why even if you're super angry and you're having the shittiest day mm -hmm. why leave a, you know a comment on a stranger's Instagram how is that gonna make it better <laughs> like, yeah. there's no way it's gonna make it better it's like I got that one you know I, it's like this so it's a funny funny concept I think everybody just needs to uh, to deal with it it's just what, what it is but I yeah. think maybe you know if, if people had to have like very you know some verification or just to have to have like a personal thing maybe it would be be better because people wouldn't tell you in an elevator like you need to improve your forehand I saw your video <laughs> I don't yeah think it's so. exactly right I mean it, it it's coaches know again as you say like you're not paying me so why should I you know got my way to tell you this this and that and um I hate to make blanket statements but more so than not it is men who who are telling me this too and it's just like you know I it, I've literally never had a woman give me feedback on what I'm doing I've had women be like this is crap but I've not had women be like you need to do this and try this and try to explain to me like what it is that I'm doing wrong and so that that to me is an interesting like psychology in itself and um yeah I mean like the other day I'm playing at a local court and this guy's like oh I just started learning tennis two years ago and he's out there trying to you know coach people who've played for eight nine ten years or played for their whole life I'm like mate just just play your game like people will like you so much more if you don't insert yourself into what they're doing and it's just nobody wants unsolicited advice whether it's online or in person <laughs> unless like I'm playing with you and I'm like hey like what do I need to do differently I'm asking you a question or we're a team or something I'm not giving you any advice <laughs> like why I'm not qualified to do so and uh, it's annoying more than anything like nobody likes it not just in sport but in anything you do so I think it's like just uh some people need that humble reminder of like just keep your thoughts to yourself <laughs> like and uh if you're really that great of a coach like go ahead and get your qualification and uh you can teach me in person and if it if it makes that much of a difference then uh i'll give you all the credit <laughs> yeah even i think felix uh, said that he wanted to um 
when I talk to him, he's like, he, he gets, you know, advice. He's playing on, on the ATP tour. I mean, lower level, but still like mm -hmm. any people write to him, like how he should improve his life, his, his forehand, his whatever. <laughs> and he just wants to like pay for their flights so they can fly and he can beat them six love, six yeah. love. Like, I'm not sure that would help, but that, that would be funny. At least it would be a funny, funny content idea. You know, you would, I would love to see that if like some hater has to fly somewhere and get spanked, it would just <laughs> would be good. That would be great. Yeah. I think that was an interesting conversation around the US Open this year with like uh, Andy Roddick and Andrea Petkovic, where they were talking about there's some study where like more than 50% of Americans thought that they could get a game off of a professional player. And I, I'm like, are you serious? Like half of you wouldn't even be able to get one ball back over the net. Like, do you understand the difference in topspin and trajectory and speed in which, you know, these players are playing? Like it's a completely different ball game, amateur tennis and professional tennis. And like, it blows my mind how easy people think it is. Like, it's one of the most difficult sports in the world, and I, I just can't, for the life of me, understand how that many people think that they could really get a game off of these professional players. Like, I would, I would be excited to win one point in a set. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you, I mean, you should. I mean, I played against guys who are like two hundred in the world, and you're afterwards. I leave feeling somewhat depressed, but also yeah. appreciative, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. Okay, we are two different sports here, you know, and I'm playing yeah. five, six times a week, you know, but it's, it's like, I, I think it's just watching sports on TV makes people have this expert mindset. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like, seems to be like, ah, I see the mistake this pitcher is doing or this football player, or whatever. And you're like, do mm, you really seeing it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Or people be like, oh, it's so easy, but I would have finished that. I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> yeah, everybody wants yeah. to comment. It's like, yeah. oh, that was so bad. You know, I, I'm, I'm a better pole uh, Walter than this. You're yeah. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I know. Everyone's like, oh, that was the easiest overhead in the world. I'm like, mate, I am sure you have shanked more overheads than you've made in your life. So please, like, leave it be. You know, I think uh, some people really don't appreciate the level at which these athletes compete, how good they are. Um, you know the 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 different levels of sport, as you say, it's it's a different ball game. Like even you know from an amateur playing somebody who's played college level tennis, it's demoralizing and extremely humbling every time. Like you know, it's like it's one thing to be able to go out there and rally with somebody. It's like yeah, that pro can take twenty five percent off of their shot so they can keep a rally going with you. But as soon as you start a point, that ball's sailing past you, my friend. Like you know, it's uh, being able to understand that just because you might be able to hit back and forth with someone doesn't mean that you can you can beat them it's a completely different scenario and they're much more intelligent and they have the strategy down and the knowledge down i mean it's just so arrogant to think that uh you know you could beat somebody at that level i think one of the problems is the bird's eye view sometimes on the tv i mean it's not always mm. bird's eye but it's often bird's eye view where you get like this false sense of slowness to the game like oh i it takes one two three seconds for djokovic to run to this side and then you're like do you know how much court he's covering in like seconds you know it's it's mm -hmm. and and if you get closer where they sometimes like very rarely dip behind the players and you see the spin and the pace yeah. and then you at least get an idea but i think this like watching it from i mean some tournaments do it to extremes where the camera looks like it's a drone you know you're like yeah. okay i don't want to watch tennis from a drone you mm -hmm. know you want to be closer to the action maybe not all the time but i, I kind of prefer being as close as, as possible
I completely agree. I think that's a very clever point. And I think when you do see the courtside angle and you're right behind the player, I think in particular, like the, the spin or the RPMs is what's like the most challenging thing to deal with for for players or to kind of understand that difference of like when you're getting a ball and it kicks up that fast and that high on you and like that's something you don't you know you're not used to it's almost impossible to like get it back over I mean you know that feeling of like oh my god like that kicks like I really need to adjust everything about my timing and and the way that I'm playing and so yeah that kind of courtside angle when you're right behind the player definitely shows that a lot more and also shows that anticipation and their ability to read the game I think that's the other thing we don't appreciate it's like not just their physical capability but it's like they look at how another player's hips are lined up or shoulders are lined up and are able to you know guess with good percentages uh, or probabilities oh that ball's going down the line or that's going cross court that's coming as a slice and being able to anticipate that and make the next you know have the next shot already planned out before they've hit that one like that is a completely different skill set it's um a different intelligence and something that we don't you know appreciate or see on the tv until you're really playing tennis and you're like ah okay like i i understand why at the highest level this game is so freaking difficult do you have any plans for 2024 to go to any tournaments live maybe you did a few this year but but like do you have like bmp paribas indian wells what what's uh, your schedule like Yes, I'm definitely going to go to Indian Wells. I'm also hoping to go to San Diego. I know they moved that tournament to be just before Indian Wells this year, so I'm really stoked about that because I missed it um, in September. And I'm hoping... I'll definitely go to the US Open again. I'm hoping maybe Wimbledon will be on the cards. I applied for the ballot, keeping my fingers crossed. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, I think we'll see where my my hopes and dreams go with commentary and what I'm able to do. But if I can get my name on a couple press passes here and there, that would certainly make going to the tournaments a little bit more affordable and um, hopefully widen my my reach of you know of, of meeting folks at the tournaments and being able to share fun content around it and uh, hopefully inspire some more people to to get some tickets and and turn up. Yeah, and it's not that important possible to get press pass i mean some tournaments are very like you know old-fashioned and stuff but they, they generally is being a bit more social media friendly it's yeah. a slow transition but it's it seems like it's happening that's what i've noticed at least i will see yeah. i'm planning also to go to indian wells and then uh i mean wimbledon would be cool i've uh, been there before but it's it's a fantastic tournament of course so it would be nice it, it would, and you need to plan ahead because like if you are like four months before a tournament sometimes not enough <laughs> no, so you need to be yeah. like applying really early but uh, yeah, it's it, true. It's it's a good way to integrate a bit with the players and also get some interviewing opportunities and and also like tennis should be watched live. I know it's a cost thing for most people, but it's like it's so much better live than it's on TV. Yeah, yeah, and I think what I've realized recently is like I've brought friends with me who aren't big tennis people. I'm like, oh, just come with me. Like I know tennis well. I'll explain everything to you. It'll be a fun day. And the number of times I like oh my gosh, I had so much fun. I had no idea tennis was like this. I'm definitely going to be coming back. It's really, it's, it's really awesome to see that, you know, because it's not just um, about the tennis itself, but a lot of these tournaments put on a really great event and a really great show and there's different activations and things to do. And of course, Indian Wells is such a beautiful venue. It's hard not to like it in itself. So um, yeah, I try 
when I go to these types of tournaments to bring people along who maybe aren't the biggest tennis heads and a lot of the time they leave feeling like oh this is definitely something I would come back for and that to me shows again that like tennis as a sport and a product is um is really great it's just the exposure and the reach of widening you know the the community beyond just your tennis diehard fans to include folks who are just sports fans um you know would really benefit the sport in the long run what a great point uh, to end this conversation on uh yeah. Do you have a TikTok account? I was going to ask because it's Eliza's World Instagram that's going to be in the description, of course. But do you do, you do TikTok as well? I do. My TikTok has um, been a little bit dormant over the last couple of months, just because it's hard to keep up with both. But I'm on TikTok. It's Eliza's World, so same handle. And um, yes, I my goal is to get started back on TikTok. I've found it's much easier to build community on Instagram, and TikTok can be. Uh, it's easier to go viral, but there are some strange people on TikTok. So if you really want to connect with me and chat, Instagram is the place, but you can also find me on TikTok as well. Yeah, I find TikTok to be impossible to understand. Like, uh, I don't know <laughs> what, what I'm doing wrong, but I'm like, because I, it seems like if you use the right song, the correct filter that's, that's in at the moment, mm -hmm. like you just need to follow a trend, jump on it and have some good timing. I think that's it. Yeah. But like building that thing, which I mean, tennis nerd is a lot about like people sharing a passion for tennis mm -hmm. and uh, connecting in a community and the website and the Instagram and the, the YouTube and so on. But on TikTok, it seems like you can't do that at all. You know, it's completely no. different, you know. I don't have the same interactions with the same people, you know, day in, day out that I do on Instagram. On TikTok, like, yes, I've had a couple random videos that you know can can go a little viral get a, a good number of views but uh they don't stay or it's uh not the same connection i'm able to build on instagram so to me uh instagram's still the the easier product to navigate and also the one that allows me to to connect most with other like-minded people it was great connecting with you eliza i wish you all the best i hope we can meet in person maybe in india once or something yeah tennis. Uh, i'm sure people listening to this will subscribe and follow you and you're on your okay. journey and uh, we hope to see you in the commentating booth at us open very soon <laughs> keep <laughs> pushing so much thank you for having me it's a real pleasure and i um, hope to see you at indian wells cool